This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Faye Weldon, who died on January 4, 2023, at the age of 91, was best known as the author of a series of novels focusing on often ordinary women and their struggle to survive and prosper in a sexist world. Best known for the life and loves of a she-devil, her career spanned five decades. She came to California and was interviewed on Probabilities twice. The first was for the cloning of Joanna May in... 1990, and the second time for her novels Darcy's Utopia and Life Force on January 21st, 1992, recorded in the KPFA studios. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Now, you grew up in New Zealand in a family of women, right? That's right, yes. And then ended up in a family of men, that is to say, one husband and four sons. And the transition over the years, was it gradual enough for you to be able to acclimate, or did you feel like suddenly it, it was not? It was not... very sudden. <laughs> <laughs> it was very sudden, but it was all right. It was just different. The power kind of relations in the society somehow, somehow shifted. But the cat was female. Did you feel that you had moved to another planet? I tell you, yes. It was much more fun, I tell you. It is much more It is much more exhilarating living with, in a household of men than it is with women. So I think I shouldn't say that, but it's somehow... Life with men isn't earnest or serious in some way, whereas life with, 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 in a household of women has sort of meaning, purpose, and intent. Well, do you feel that a, a, a sole man living in a household of women would have a similar feeling? Yes, I think so. Or would, would perhaps interpret would interpret lightheartedness as frivolity. I don't think I could pursue this with any any um with much sense really, because you have your own experience which is not necess you can't really um universalise from that. This is just my experience of living either with women in, in, in a household of women or in a household with men. It may be a lot to do with economics. In a household with men, there usually is, is usually a lot more f money floating around than in a household with, with women in it. Because women's households are usually living on the breadline. But you have, in effect, made a career of writing about men and writing about women, so... <laughs> Yes, I think the change is what animates you or energizes you because because it is... Growing up, I assumed that the world was female, that power was female, that women ran the world, because so far as I could see, they did. And also growing up in the war in New Zealand, there weren't many men about, poor things. They were all out fighting rashly for their what they believed to be their um, home country, who later betrayed them by joining the common market and refusing to take their butter and cheese. <laughs> and then I, and I went to an all-girls school, and it wasn't until I was... 17 and went off to university that I actually moved, began moving amongst men. And then you realize that the world was male because there was even a male-female quota at the university. And because I had the misfortune to be called Franklin Birkinshaw boy on my birth certificate, they assumed I was a boy and let me in. When I arrived, they said, but you're not a boy, you're female. I said, yes. And they said, well, you can't come here because we've got more than enough. <laughs> was very annoyed at this and so they reluctantly agreed to accept me but all that all that was very strange and then then I did moral philosophy with a with um with a tutor who who uh, with a professor who refused to have women in his class but his 
uh, you know, times were moving forward and he found himself obliged there were f to have them. There were four of us in there and he never spoke to us. He never marked our essays. He just assumed that we weren't there. And we took what sort of information and knowledge we could from him. And uh, every now and then he would say women are not, carefully not looking at us, he would say women are not capable of moral judgment or rational thought. But it didn't annoy us. That was what's so strange. At that time, you just thought, well, that is what the world is obviously like. It would tend to give you a, an interesting perspective on, say, feminist issues, because since you grew up in a, in a world where women were all powerful until you were 17, and then you meet men doing their number, men would come across, rather than being powerful, they'd come across as silly in their approach, because you would know it's completely having grown up with women, that their view is completely ridiculous. Yes, but the trouble was that you then you then perceived that the way, the only, at that age, that the only way ahead, and at that time, that the only way ahead was through, was through men. You had to marry somebody who could support you. Otherwise, it was possible to go into the civil service uh, and earn a living which would just about keep you independently, but then you couldn't have children because there was a, a clear choice to be made between, and still is to a, to a certain extent, um, between having a career and earning a living or, uh, or and doing without as it were, the whole female side of your nature or, or just being a middle-class housewife. If you were born male, do you think you would have been able to be a writer? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, I think that is actually genderless. I think the substance, the substance of what you write would, would probably be different, but a response to words is just, um, an, or, or, the, or the notion of writing fiction, or the, the notion of inventing parables for the, world, for the real world, or of, of improving upon the examples the creator has seen fit to give you, is without gender. There is a political feeling among some people that men and women should be treated identically, that there is no real difference between us except uh, the plumbing, so to speak. Do you accept that notion? I think you have to behave as if there were no difference while understanding that there is, that so far as women moving in society go, they must be treated, I mean, treated, I mean, they must regard themselves and act as if they were the equivalent the total equivalent of men when it comes to other aspects of their behavior. It seems to me women are allowed to be women and men are allowed to be men for, for emotional purposes, but perhaps not for, but certainly not for practical purposes. Could you elaborate on that? Be, be specific. Um, difficult. I suppose the caring, nurturing, decorative function of women does seem to me to be part to be part of their nature. I'm sure when I write, I have a kind of sense that I ought, but that my role is, as Virginia Woolf said, the angel of the house. There is part of you which says, I've got to behave responsibly here. I've got to, the part of the male is to destroy and the part of the female is to pick up the pieces. And, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that, is, that, is what you're, that is what you're doing. Certainly, people, men and women, respond to women's work other than they respond to men's work. I think I've rather lost my track, my um, flow of thought here. Let's say that a, a typical novel were published with a uh, an androgynous name, such as uh, J.B. Fletcher. We don't know whether J is Jack or Jane, and there's no author photo or other indication of the gender of the author. Would the reader be able to tell? Would it matter? 
No, of course it wouldn't matter. In fact, I think it's here at Berkeley they they keep doing this uh, this piece of research in which, uh, in, in fact, it does matter that uh, you give a group of students, men and women, essays and you ask them to mark them, and it's the same essay and sometimes it's attributed to a man and sometimes to a woman, and what happens is that the men upgrade the men's work, but women upgrade it even more. And if it's a woman's work, it is downgraded by men, but downgraded by women even more. So you would suspect it was the self-image of, of women, which is the trouble that a woman will take a book by a man more seriously, in an, in an artistic and literary sense, I think, than... than uh, I mean, I get by because somehow I, I, I kind of steer some sort of middle course between, between being kind of literary and, and, if you like, domestic and kind of elitist and popular. And so you know, <laughs> <laughs> if I attend to the matter with some cunning kind of, you know, manage to bypass these, these terrible damning sort of gender opinions. Getting into your one of your two new books, Darcy's Utopia, you have a character named Eleanor Darcy who is pretty much responsible for a, a utopian philosophy, and yet most people think that it's a philosophy engendered by her husband, Julian. Yes, but that is what she is saying. Yes, in a way, she is hiding behind him because she knows that really she is manipulating, but she knows that only if it is... He's, he's the one who's going to prison anyway. He goes to prison. She doesn't. That's true. <laughs> and she lives to start a new religion, which seems open to, you know, open to women, whereas the, the more, the more sort of social theorizing is, is, is um, more welcome from the male than it, is, than it is from the female. But then, you see, I mean, I'm always playing both sides to the middle, you see, personally, anyway. Well, the priest is a man. And the priest, and the priest <laughs> yes, and the priest is a man. In Darcy's Utopia, you have three interweaving, not necessarily plots, but three interweaving stories. One is the story of her utopia by her, which is fascinating, um, and one is the story of the journalists, and the third is, of course, her life story, Eleanor's life story, or Apricot's life story. Yes. Um, the philosophy of the utopia... How much of it is your own philosophy? Probably about 60%. Or it, it, the trouble is, you, see, you have a different opinion every day, if you're me. It's not my philosophy. They are, they are actually ideas which are meant to be shot down. But you have to take things to extremes to be argued with in order to be brought back from the brink of, of what must occasionally appear like simple fascism. But if, um, <laughs> or occasionally, the other, the other end of the spectrum. But unless somebody, it did seem to me at the time, unless somebody puts forward ideas, and nobody seems to put forward ideas anymore of social management. There is no, there is no argument. There, nothing happens. Nothing changes. That you can never, one person could never get anything right. But only what one person can do is to put forward ideas, have them contradicted, and be have the consequences of those ideas when put into practice explained in order that you can say, oh no, couldn't do that. So the utopia itself is not meant, at least in your mind, when you're writing the book, is not meant to be taken. Seri well, it is meant to be taken seriously as ideas, but not as a utopia, but not per as a, se. But, certain, but certainly not as a utopia, because the, the days are long past when, when you could hope to 
you could believe that by doing this, that or the other in, in, in politically or, or legally, you could bring about a perfect society. You might be able to bring about a better one and a more rational one. What about the idea of opening up the ATMs, the automatic tellers, and just letting everybody get money and watching what happens? Well, I, I do continue to believe that's rather a good idea. I say this and people look at me in horror and then I say, well, actually, I did get a first in economics, you know, <laughs> and that silences them for a little, which is more than Mrs. Thatcher ever did, who only studied chemistry, and she seemed to believe she understood monetarism. Yes, the general theory being that... Um, Money in itself no longer represents anything. It doesn't represent goods or services or, or, or certainly doesn't measure anybody's honesty or capacity for hard work. On the contrary, that it has lost its meaning. And the only way that you can actually get back to money or whatever you're going to use instead of money as a token of exchange or, or some measure of social justice is to make is to devalue it totally by just printing it. And I believe that's what they're doing in the Soviet Union at the moment and happens in Brazil and happens in all kinds of countries. We will see what happens next where inflation is so enormous that in fact money ceases to be the token of exchange. It is a rather extreme and revolutionary view but I don't see that it can be bought back. Our financial state can be, I mean, the, all the great inequities between rich and poor, which are increasing, can really be changed in any other way. But, but if we just turn on the printing presses, what do we get? Something like Weimar Germany? Indeed we do, yes. But that was Weimar Germany a long time ago. And what happened next then is not necessarily what happens next now. If you organize it properly, you have, we will see what happens in the Soviet Union, which in a way they are, they are trying this experiment there now. And, and it will probably be disastrous. There's another part of the philosophy that um, your other characters kind of are appalled by. And I would gather so are we, but there's something about it, and that's the idea of only letting people have children who are actually capable of having children and raising them properly. Well, you just need six, I said ten, it's rather a lot, you just need six people to sign a bit of paper to say you're fit to have a baby. That just means that instead of having to opt out of having a baby, which is what you do now, it's the easiest thing and the most natural thing and the most ordinary thing in the world to get pregnant, you have to take steps not to, and many people don't want to, can't be bothered, uh, to take those steps. All I'm saying is if you actually had to make a decision to have a baby, you would then probably be fit to have it. I just want to make it more difficult to have a baby than to not have a baby. At the moment it's weighted, it's weighted in the wrong way and many, most babies I would like to submit come along are there accidentally because nobody had the wit, the energy, the courage or the emotional strength to stop it. Another thing interesting is most of the characters who have children in this book, in Darcy's Utopia, keep saying, if I only had, didn't have kids, I'd be able to do something with my life. <laughs> well, this is true. This is what I hear. This is what I hear all around all the time. I mean, it's easy for me. I have four of them, you see, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm protected here from actually having to face the consequences of my, my own rationale. Let, let's get on to Life Force, which is the most recent. Uh, one of the first things that struck me upon reading Life Force was that many of your works, certainly the ones I'm familiar with, uh, have an element of the fantastic in them, science fiction of a sort, or fantasy, or utopianism, whereas Life Force is, is very 
deeply rooted in contemporary reality. Is this by design, or, or is this perception correct? I think that perception is great. I, I mean, in a way, it's, it's um, I, I fear, like many things, it is, it is slightly calculated that Darcy's Utopia was such a difficult book for people to swallow that I thought perhaps Life Force might actually be quite a nice, easy read. But then involved yourself, and then it becomes actually so far as I'm concerned, an experiment in form, in how you can appear on the cover, but actually not be there in the novel at all, because there is a narrator within a narrator within a narrator, and the skill seems to me in bridging the gaps between one narrator and another, so the whole thing flows. I think perhaps after Darcy's Utopia, and being held responsible to such a degree for Eleanor Darcy's views... (laughs) (laughs) that in this novel there is almost nothing I feel I could be responsible for at all because I will blame Nora who's sitting in the Rialta's office in the middle of the in the middle of the of of a recession with absolutely nothing to do but write her novel at her word processor and then she it is who enters in to the other characters and it is her view not my view of everything that happens even though it's in the third person and so it it is an exercise in a kind of some sort of concealed narrator i think so that even when we have sections which are narrated by marion they are narrated by her as perceived by nora as perceived by nora as she says from time to time this is only what i think goes on in marion's head but what but but marion is seen actually through Nora's eyes, and Nora is a very domestic person who is very sorry for Marion because Marion has no family and and no children, only cats and an art gallery. Well, cats and an art gallery to me might seem fine to Nora, the narrator. You know, so there is a there is a kind of emphasis all the way through of a of a of a perception of a very straight down the middle person. That's similar, in fact, to Darcy's Utopia when the entire book is coming through, uh, what's her name, Valerie, I think. No, not really, because... Well, the question and answer period isn't, but the biography no, but of the Eleanor... Question, but the question and answer, the question and answer thing is, is where I have to be, and the question and answer thing is, is where you get most other sections in which people most... You know, I've had to talk most in order to try and defend myself. And so I think I just want to try something which would be a slight rest after Darcy's Utopia. Well, and in fact, there are other very important characters, certainly uh, Anita and Jocelyn, the the, uh, two Mrs. Beck in the book. Uh, But we see everything through Nora's eyes. I wonder now, uh, speaking of Leslie Beck, who is the the only major male character in the book, although there are many other male characters in it. Um, what would Robert Bly think of Leslie Beck? Now, you'll have to tell me who Robert Bly is. Ah, he's the the grand guru of the so-called men's movement Oh, yes, in oh, yes. Well, I think he'd rather admire him, wouldn't he? Because here was Leslie Beck, well endowed, doing just what a man does, moving through the lives of women, being male, procreating happily and not being responsible for it. Is that the kind of thing that he thinks is a good idea? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't want to speak for Mr. Fly. <laughs> but uh, you can't judge a book by its cover, at least that's an old saying. But but what about the, the dust jackets on the respective uh, British and U.S. editions of Life Force? 
Well, you see, I did I did refer sort of part of the way through the manuscript to the fact that, that Leslie Beck was remarkably well endowed. In fact, that his penis was one-sixth of his height. Now, this phrase seems to have preyed upon the minds of publishers and lead readers to a remarkable extent and rarely got their designers going on the jackets. So, oh, And it, trans it is translated instantly into all kinds of all kinds of countries, with great rapidity, I think, because they're all longing to vie with each other on the on the shocking nature of the jacket. This one, the American edition, the, the, the Viking Penguin, or Penguin Viking, I never remember edition, has got a, a statue of Michelangelo, full frontal, and a kind of modesty slip over it, which says, Life Force and, and My Name. It comes off very easily, and I notice in bookstores they just simply take it off. So it says a novel. It is not attributed to me, fortunately. And the Dutch edition is really amazing because it has a man. The it is quite the cover is quite decent because it has a man side view with just a kind of quarter of an inch of an erection, and then you turn the jacket, and there it goes on. I never turned the jacket, they, but they gave it to me. I didn't understand this. I said, "What are you making this fuss about?" Of course, I said. But then I hadn't looked to see. So I doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't worry me if that's what they want to do. If they're desperate enough to sell books and they believe that this is how they will sell books, well, good luck to them, say I. Have you been accused of being a pornographer? It's the most discreet and respectable book imaginable, I think. There is almost, there is very little graphic in it compared to most books that I read. But it might, it might, I suppose, be an erotic book because it's about the imagination rather than about actuality. And the fact is that Leslie Beck, seen by Marion when she was an au pair in the household, in the bathroom, ran round all the friends and families to tell them what she had seen, the amazing size of his... <laughs> This <laughs> purple mottled member they played upon the imaginations of this these this group of, of sort of dinner partying really nice liberal or quite ordinary young marrieds in in the most extraordinary way so it's about in a way it's not about it's it's about the erotic imagination rather than than sex which is probably more interesting there was one scene in the book which uh, made me wonder if you were being referential to a very famous scene in, in From Here to Eternity by James Jones, the uh, Burt Lancaster on the beach in Hawaii. There's a, a beach scene in Life Force. I'm not conscious of that, but I'm not saying that's not, you know, it's it's not it's everything you have ever seen. I haven't read the book, but I did read, I did see the movie when young, and perhaps it kind of feeds into your imagination, and then you produce it un unwittingly. I got a, a, a furious letter once from somebody in Spain who'd, who had read a novel of mine called Remember Me, and said he'd thrown it across the room in disgust because it was a direct plagiarism of, of Under Milk Wood. And I thought, this man is bizarre and went to the book and opened it and he was absolutely right you know so if you say that you may, all i can say is well you you may well be right but alas my unconscious yes. i thought that was quite nice though i thought all that that was quite um, quite good the sense of the tide approaching did he know this was the thing about lizzie beck you never were quite sure whether it was planned or whether it was spontaneous but you always suspected it probably was planned and absent curious that last fall, there was an, another incident involving, how you say the word, dong, 
uh, and a certain Supreme Court justice named Clarence Thomas and uh, the Anita Hill incident. Did you hear a lot about that? Oh over yes, there? yes, yes. I was actually over here when it was on, on the weekend when it was all on the radio and in. In, in, in the press, and everyone was glued to this amazing kind of courtroom drama, which seemed excellently scripted by the Almighty. What was your take on it all? Well, I, I, I wrote a piece for the New York Times, very difficult about it, and, and the perception from, from the other side of the Atlantic is, is rather different. I think it's both marvel and wonder that everything is so investigated and that, that, that what happened 10 years ago, the detail of which is everyone is still supposed to remember, is being investigated. That it was a kind of, almost a kind of battle between, which was worse, racism or sexism. And that somehow, you know, these, these, the, 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 the at, at a kind of cosmic judgment was being made. And in the end, because it was also male, Racism was seen as worse than sexism. Would you think that this transcript of such a thing could have come from a Faye Weldon novel? Or do you think you would never have gone that far? Or would you have taken it further if it had I been think a I novel? Would have, I think I would have taken it a bit further because there are things you long to know. The great, the great thing about novels is that actually it does tie up loose ends, doesn't it? You would need to know what, what, um, what the judge goes on to do, what kind of judge he is. You would want to know what is going to happen to Anita Hill next. There are all kinds of things you feel you need, you feel you needed to know. Mostly what you want to know is, is who, 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 what happened. And, and all you have is people's memories of what happened and people's wishful thinking or otherwise about what happened. And so at least the great thing that the novel fiction has about real life is that you do are told happened. Well, but, but real life gives us sequels more than fiction, because right after Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, we had the Willie Kennedy Smith trial. Yes, it is all quite, it is, it is all, all quite extraordinary. I, I, I wrote, an, I wrote a, a novella called, called The Rules of Life, in which there was a new fictional, it's a future, about a future society in which a new fictional religion had been established and people worshipped scripts and fiction and God was known as the great screenwriter in the sky or the, the swiss <laughs> <laughs> and he had his priests and um, I just think he's and, and when in doubt he always sort of brings in an avalanche or a plane crash or a bomb explosion <laughs> because he can't really work it out and I do feel he had been very busy lately. Now Life Force is, is still a very new book. Yes. Uh, has there been any particular response to it yet either from uh, critics or or from self-appointed morality squads or from anyone there's been a a um i mean, i think it's it's actually it's a very kind of tasteful jacket you, you know it's sort of tones of browns and dark and it's it's nice it doesn't look yeah. unless you remove the modesty slip but like like of, of, of frank or brutal in any way at all and even if you do it merely looks like a work of art and rather boring in fact, I think it's much more fun with this slip on than out. Um, but the reviews, the only reviews, Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and, and all the rest of it, have been so good. I thought when I read them, they were publishers' blurbs. And only when you got to this thing in the tale, you thought, that's a funny thing for a publisher to say. <laughs> <laughs> Did you realize actually what you were reading with the, you know, and the library periods and all the, yeah. all the sort of pre 
pre-thing have been very good, which doesn't mean to say that, you know, that, that people won't complain bitterly What I, when, it, when it comes out. But I don't think really, I think you would be hard put to object to the jacket or, or to, to, to claim damages under the Trades Description Act. You may not have one of those. <laughs> I don't think we do. <laughs> not sure with that act. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you know, you never know, and the critics may, may decide to, to, to dislike it. They... Um, People complain greatly nowadays that I write too much, you know, or that I'm prolific, which is seen as a bad as a bad thing. But I, I just really feel the more you write, the more you can write. It is just the kind of sort of self-perpetuating activity that just speeds up until one day you fall flat on your face. You could switch over to some of these huge uh, six and eight hundred page novels, and yeah, and... but they're so. Oh, yes, so dreadful to write and to hold in your head and to hold in your mind. I mean, three, three, 350 pages seems seems pretty long to me. And I don't think really, I mean, if you write that kind of novel, you have to get into an and then, and then, and then, and then mode. And it is really boring. And the whole point of novels, so far as I can see, is shape, is, is, is the kind of, is the satisfaction of a, satisfaction of a shape, of a kind of cohesion of form, which you can actually contain in a novel. So you would be disinclined. Are you inclined to read those books at all? or No, they're too heavy. They weigh down my hand. I mean, I will pick up a book, and if it's too thick, I write, read a lot of a lot of paperbacks and a lot of thrillers because I do a lot of traveling, and I'm often tired. But if they're too heavy, you just I just put them back again. I mean, I know it's meant to be your money's worth, but you know, I mean, the likelihood of you actually enjoying this book is probably about 20%, you know, and you would really rather go for a for a middle for a middle side book. On the other hand, if they're too thin, you you suggest you you suspect kind of flimsiness of purpose on the part of the writer. All of this brings up the relationship between the novel and the short story, because you have a, a collection called Moon Over Minneapolis. Do you see the construction of a short story as different from that of a novel? Yeah, well, they're shorter. Well, I mean, in, in <laughs> you know, and in, in, they in, stop soon. <laughs> So if, if Shrapnel Academy had blown up fifty pages earlier, it would have been a short story, yes. not a novel. Yes, yes, but I couldn't have, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done that. I mean, I would rather write anything in a short story than a novel because it's less work. But sometimes you, you know, so you you can't. I mean, the Shrapnel Academy was quite was quite short, but that was its somehow that was its its natural and proper length. You couldn't do it any sooner because you couldn't have have built up all those people as real real people. You couldn't have brought in your recipes for cucumber salad and stuff. You couldn't have interwoven that with historical episodes in order to make your point. So that was its that was its natural length. Short stories often often come out of titles or ideas or things that are um that that kind of press it in upon your mind when you're writing something longer. And the way to get out get it out of your head is to um actually write it as a short story and then and then it's it's done gone we we recently came across a quotation from robertson davies the canadian writer that every book has a proper length whether it's 90 pages or 900 and part of the function of being a good author is to discover what that length is yes i think that's that's that is that is completely so it it has a it has a kind of organic existence, and you, you, and, and, so, and sometimes you write short stories, and you think, well, actually, that probably, that probably should have been a novel, or it could have been a novel, or by the time you've got to the end of it, you realise it's actually about 
something else, or it is about some other character or something else. But but and then you either you know take that up or or leave it as it is, depending upon what else you're doing. I do write. Um, I do do quite a lot of television screenplays, and then sometimes move those over into novels, into prose, because the main character you discover when you see it is not actually the main character, or something else is, is more preoccupying than what you actually did there, or it's not finished. In fact. How, how do you feel about um, what are sometimes called, I believe, gratuitous acts of kindness? I'm thinking specifically of, of the way you spared that poor scrawny cat at the end of Life Force. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> you have to, really. Given a free fictional choice between something good happening and something bad happening, you will make something good happen, if you're me. The thing about fiction is you have to, to tie up loose ends, as, as you can't in the Judge Thomas Anita Hill case. <laughs> and part of it is, is if you have referred to a cat, even in passing, you must either send it to heaven or hell or do something with it. <laughs> well, we pretty much run out of time, but each of your books, the last three, have been extraordinarily different from one another. Can you give a hint as to what you're working on now? Yes, I hate therapists. That's it. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be an anti-therapist book. You've been listening to an interview with the late Faye Weldon, who died on January 4th, 2023, at the age of 91 recorded on January 21st, 1992, while she was on tour for her novels, Darcy's Utopia and Life Force. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>